Okay, let's go ahead and get started. Thanks for coming. I, it's uh, it's pretty cool that you guys are sticking it out. We're five five weeks in, and I tend to not try to do either sermon series or classes that are longer than six weeks because most people don't make it that long. As no matter how interesting it is, especially during the summer. But you guys have been faithful and. Most of you have been here every single week. I know there are other things. You have to be out of town or things like that, but you guys have been... So you must be interested. It must be oh, helping yeah. you at least a little bit. Right? Nothing better than What's that? <laughs> <laughs> You're just hoping that, some, that one of these times it's going to click. I said I have nothing better to do. <laughs> and I'm blushing. Well, hopefully one of these times it will click. Probably won't be tonight. So I said, uh, I said last week that we were going to do chapters 6 through 20. We're actually only going to do probably 6 through 16. And I know, I know you're really disappointed. How many, of you, how many of you read all of that or most of it? Okay. How many of you had any idea what it was saying? Had to go to the Bible Project. The Bible Project is very helpful. It's a great resource. Before we get into it, let's go ahead and open with prayer. Linda, would you mind opening us? Sure. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time to come together and to learn more about your word, Father, and, and we're just grateful that um, Pastor Corey is uh, willing to put in the time and, and uh, help us through this. And I just pray, Father, that you would just open our hearts and our minds and give us some understanding, Father, as we, as we go through these chapters. And, and I just am so grateful for your word, Father, and, and I know, Father, that it is to teach us, to show us the way. And for that, I am so very, very grateful. So, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will fill this space and that you would guide us as we go through this tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Well, we, there, there's no way we're going to be able to do this in any great detail. And so we're going to take a very high-level approach to these ten chapters the Bible Project is actually really good at the high-level approach to things. And so I'm using, I, I thought, I, I really like the way he explains it, the way he goes through it. And if you were here when I played the, the first video, you'll know it's like drinking from a fire hose. And I'm going to show you two of those. Well, actually, I'm going to show you the second half of that first video, and then I'm going to show you the second video. And I don't expect you to get it when you see it the first time. But what I want to do is I want to go like all the way to the end of the book, have, have, having him explain it, and pay attention to the structure because the structure will really help us in, in understanding it. But I want to get all the way to the end. We'll finish the book next week, but I want you to see like the big picture. It's almost like uh, if you think about a puzzle, looking at the, the picture on the box before you try to put together all the little pieces. If you don't have that big picture, it would be almost impossible to put the puzzle together. 
And I think that's kind of what Revelation is. We're going to try to get the big picture first, and then we're going to go in and start to look at some of the details. And after today, I can guarantee that you're still not going to get it. <laughs> Mostly because I don't get it totally. You know? But I think, but there are a lot of clues, and the structure is really helpful. And, and I think the, the one thing that I would say is, one of the reasons that Revelation seems really confusing is we get bogged down in a lot of the details. And try to, try to correlate all of the details with this, 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 and this, you know, very specifically. And while there might be some, like, references and echoes of things, mostly you're not going to be able to correlate symbols with exact things. They might, be, they might be correlated with ideas or something, like, for instance, the beast. Well, the beast can be the emperor, it can be the empire, it can be Rome, it can be Babylon, it could be modern, you know, it could be Nazi Germany, um, any of those things. Uh, and so don't try to, you know, correlate them one-to-one -one, uh, with things. So um, before we get into the video, let's just do a quick re recap for those of you who have been following along, or maybe haven't been here right from the beginning. But good hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is just the good systematic study of Scripture. Uh, tells us that the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. In other words, it was written at a particular context to a particular group of people, usually addressing a particular situation. And so the first thing we have to do is we have to try to determine as best we can the context and what it was written for. And then we, there, there are almost always things that we can glean from it. And so it's like we're looking and we're reading someone else's mail, while actually it was kind of our mail too, but it was written to someone else for our benefit. Uh, we have to read according to the genre. Of course, we talked about three different genres, uh, Jewish apocalyptic, prophecy, and epistle. The epistles were pretty easy to figure out in, uh, I think it was, was that session three, two sessions ago, the one that Bill taught? And, uh, and then, um, yeah, and so we have, to, we have to read each section appropriately. Uh, Revelation is a historical document with future implications, not a future book with historical language, right? So in other words, as we're reading, as we're, as we're going through this today, the symbols are not primarily future symbols, they're primarily symbols from the past. And as we saw last week, so many of the symbols from chapters 4 and 5 are symbols that you see in the Old Testament prophets. And so it's drawing from there, but what it's doing is, is it's explaining a reality, or, or in some way you could say, it is explaining human history how it doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Uh, where these same things kind of happen over and over and over because this is the nature of things. This is the nature of empires. This is the nature of what it means to be the people of God. Okay, we're on the, on the margins. And, and in many ways, we're kind of intended to be on the margins. And, uh, and so, you know, it's, we can benefit from it and we can sort of extrapolate the symbols out into the future a little bit, but mostly they're situated in the past. Uh, the context of it, it was written in the mid-90s, not 1990s, but the actual 90s, under Emperor Domitian, who had not yet 
started persecuting, at least in a systematic way, Christians. They had been under Nero, and there were a couple of other emperors in there that had also persecuted Christians. Domitian would get his turn uh, in, in a few years, or it was maybe just starting at that time. Uh, Nero had been the greatest persecutor of the church to that point, but he sort of became the archetype of, of emperors for uh, John, who, who wrote the book of Revelation. Uh, there were some Christians who were being persecuted for their faith, some of them officially, most of them just locally by their neighbors and their friends and, and all of that because they were weird and had some strange beliefs and didn't do all of the things that you were expected to do when you were a part of the Roman Empire. And some of them were, th their great temptation was to accommodate. Well, actually, accommodation was always a temptation, either to avoid persecution or to be able to, um, to enjoy the fruit of being a part of the Roman Empire. And so they could compromise their faith and they could then fit in with the empire, avoid persecution, and actually maybe rise up through the ranks politically and all of that if they, if they just accommodated to room temperature of society. Um, Okay, so that was the temptation that they had, and we went through a lot of that when we were looking at the epistles. So what I'm going to do is, I'm going to start the video partway through the, the first video. In other words, this is going to take us chapters 6 through 11. We'll chat a little bit about it, and then we'll do the rest of it. Uh, if you want to follow along on your sheet, and this sheet is ultimately what the video will end up making, we're starting right in the middle where it says 6 to 16, three sets of seven divine judgments. That's where he's going to start. So you can either follow along on your sheet or you can watch it on the screen. Right? It was the way he conquered evil. And so this vision concludes with the Lamb alongside the one sitting on the throne, and together they are worshipped as the one true creator and redeemer, and the slain lamb begins to open the scroll. It's a symbol of his divine authority to guide history to its conclusion. Which brings us to the next section of the book, the three cycles of seven. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And each cycle depicts God's kingdom and justice coming here on earth as in heaven. Now, some people think that the three sets of seven divine judgments represent a literal, linear sequence of events that either happened in the past, or could be happening now, or are yet to happen in the future when Jesus returns. But notice how John has woven all the sevens together. So the final seven bowls come out of the seventh trumpet and the seventh seal. And the seven trumpets emerge from the seventh seal. They're like nesting dolls, each seventh contained to the next seven. Also notice how each of the series of seven culminates in the final judgment, and they have matching conclusions. So it's more likely that John is using each set of seven to depict the same period of time between Jesus' resurrection and future return from three different perspectives. So the slain lamb begins to open the scroll's first four seals, and John sees four horsemen. It's an image from the book of Zechariah chapter 1, and they symbolize times of war, conquest, famine, and death. In other words, a tragically average day in human history. Then the fifth seal depicts the murdered Christian martyrs before God's heavenly throne, and the cry of their innocent blood rises up before God like smoke from the altar of incense. And they're told to rest, because more Christians are yet to die. We're not told why, but we are told that it won't last forever, 
The sixth seal is God's ultimate response to their cry. He brings the great day of the Lord that was described in Isaiah and Joel, and the people of the earth cry out, who is able to stand? And then all of a sudden, John pauses the action with an intermission to answer that question. John sees an angel with a signet ring coming to place a mark of protection on God's servants who are enduring all this hardship. And he hears the number of those who were sealed, 144,000. It's a military census, like the one in the book of Numbers, chapter 1. There are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, pay attention. The number of this army is what John heard, just like he heard about the conquering lion of Judah. But in both cases, what he then turned and saw was the surprising fulfillment of those military images in Jesus, the slain lamb. So when he sees this messianic army of God's kingdom, it's made up of people from all nations, fulfilling God's ancient promise to Abraham. It's this multi-ethnic army of the lamb who can stand before God because they've been redeemed by the lamb's blood. And now they are called to conquer, not by killing their enemies, but by suffering and bearing witness just like the lamb. After this, the seventh and final seal is broken. But before the scroll is opened, the seven warning trumpets emerge from fire. bringing the day of the Lord to its completion. Now, with the seven trumpets, John backs up and he retells the story again, this time with images from the Exodus story. So the first five trumpet blasts replay the plague sent upon Egypt, and then the sixth trumpet releases the four horsemen that came from the first four seasons. So it seems that God's judgment alone will not bring people to humble repentance before him. Then John pauses the action again with another intermission. An angel brings the unsealed scroll that was opened by the Lamb. And just like Ezekiel, John is told to eat the scroll and then proclaim its message to the nations. Finally, the Lamb scroll is open and now we will discover how God's kingdom will come here on earth. The scroll's content is spelled out in two symbolic visions. First, John sees God's temple and the martyrs by the altar, and he's told to measure and set them apart. It's an image of protection taken from Zechariah chapter 2. But then the outer courts in the city are excluded, and they get trampled down by the nations. Now, some think that this refers literally to a destruction of Jerusalem that happened in the past or will happen in the future. But more likely, John's following the tradition of Jesus and the apostles, who all used the new temple as a symbol for God's new covenant people. In that case, this is an image about how Jesus' followers may suffer persecution by the nations, but this external defeat cannot take away their victory through the Lamb. This idea gets expanded in the scroll's second vision. God appoints two witnesses as prophetic representatives to the nations. And once again, some people think this refers literally to two prophets who will appear one day in the future. But John calls them lampstands, which is one of his clear symbols for the churches. So this vision is more likely about the prophetic role of Jesus' followers, who are to take up the mantle of Moses and Elijah and call idolatrous nations and rulers to turn back to the one true God. But then, all of a sudden, a horrible beast appears. Let the reader remember Daniel <coughs> chapter 7. And the beast conquers the witnesses and kills them. But then, God brings them back to life and vindicates the witnesses before their persecutors. And the end result is that many among the nations finally do repent and give glory to the Creator God in the day of the Lord. Now, stop. Think about the story so far. God's warning judgments through the seals and through the trumpets did not generate repentance among the nations, just like the Exodus plagues only hardened Pharaoh's heart. 
But the Lamb, he conquered his enemies by loving them, dying for them. And now the message of the Lamb's scroll reveals the mission of his army, the church. God's kingdom will be revealed when the nations see the church imitating the loving sacrifice of the Lamb, not killing their enemies, but dying for them. It is God's mercy shown through Jesus' followers that will bring the nations to repentance. And this surprising claim is the message of the open scroll that John has placed at the exact center of the entire book. After this, the last trumpet sounds and the nations are shaken as God's kingdom comes here on earth as it is in heaven. So now we know how the church will bear witness to the nations and inherit the new creation, but who was that terrible beast that waged war on God's people, and how will the whole story turn out? John will tell us in the second half of the book of the Revelation. Okay, questions or clarifications? The book of the Revelation of Jesus. The author of this book, which is not called Revelations, by the way, is named at the beginning. It was written by John which could refer to the beloved disciple who wrote the gospel and the letters of John, or it could be a different John. Are we blank yet? You got it, yeah. The book of the Revelation Oh, come on. The author of this book, which is not called Revelation, by the way, is named at the beginning. It was written by John. Okay, did it stop now? Yeah, we're good. Okay. I think we're good. All right. All right. Questions or clarifications? I know that that's just a lot to take in. But what did you what did you pick up from there? Anything stand out so far? Well, I think it's interesting to think about that uh, that it's not linear, and that the seven is, is sort of a, a repetitive uh, kind of repeating mm-hmm. the same message, yeah. but just with different symbols. Yeah, I think that's pretty revealing. Yeah, so this. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. That's it. That's all I got. Okay. <laughs> um, so, so this is different. Now, probably those of you who grew up with dispensationalist theology, kind of the left behind theology, that's different than what left behind says. Because if you follow left the left behind books, is what they try to do is they try to take it that that this is that basically the three sets of seven are the seven years of tribulation, and all of these things happen one after another. Okay, So it goes through the first seven, and then it goes through the second seven, and then it goes through the third seven. But what he's saying, and, and this is what most of the scholars that I've read to, uh, who are generally not dispensationalists, would say, <clears throat> I'm trying to find think of a way to, to, like an analogy. Or you think about Jesus when he was teaching in parables. Especially like in Matthew chapter 13, he goes through this section where he says, the kingdom of heaven is like, or uh, to what shall I compare it? The kingdom of heaven is like such and such. And then he describes this scenario or he gives this parable. And then right after that, he does another one. He says, and how should I compare, to what should I compare the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is like such and such, right? And so it's almost like he's just repeating himself and saying, all right, this is, this is the flow of history from God's perspective. Now, let me give it to you in, in other words. So in, at first, the, the first seals that we'll look at here, um, he does it from the perspective of Zechariah. There are four horsemen. And if you look at the four horsemen, and we'll look at Zechariah chapter 1, uh, Zechariah chapter 1 also has four horsemen with different colored horses. Again, these are symbols, but they're, they're grounded back in the Old Testament. And they, and they represent something from, from back then. Then, there, then there's judgment, 
and then there's something, there's always something with martyrs in there, and then there's final, God's final victory. And so there are kind of three movement in each section of sevens, right? So there's, uh, there's the judgments, or actually what Scott McKnight calls the disciplines, because the point of the judgment is not God's vengeance, but the point is discipline to bring people to repentance. And so the first one, like I said, is from Zechariah. The second set, which are trumpets, is told from the perspective of, of the Exodus. Saying, okay, so how should, I, how should I think about human history from God's perspective? Oh, it's kind of like the Exodus replay, right? All of this, the struggle and plagues and all of this is happening, and yet, even when all these bad things happen, people still don't repent. They still don't turn to God. And so what happens then, you have to have the people of God as a faithful presence in the world, bearing witness to, to Jesus, and people will repent as a result of our bearing witness. And so you see that just three times, it's that story. This is, this is human history played out over and over and over again. All right? So don't, don't think of it necessarily as, as sequential, uh, but think of it as different ways of restating it. And then in the middle of there... Um, and, it, and it's kind of confusing, but that's the way Jewish apocalyptic is. There's actually kind of a little interlude in there in, in chapters 12 through 14 that are a little bit different, and then it goes back and does seven bowls. So, uh, anyway, so that's a good observation. Good observation. It's not. Don't think of it as sequential history necessarily, but it's kind of history from God's perspective explained in three different ways. I like the fact that it um, gave a better understanding um, of the symbols. Okay. You know, like the, um, I'm, I'm thinking of the two witnesses. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always, when I've read that, I've always thought two people. Two literal people, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, and then to realize, to look at it from the perspective of they are really represent the church, mm-hmm. you know, so would, would, the, would the people who this letter is going out to, would they understand that? As the church has lampstands? Yeah. Well, it, as, says, as, it says as it as in chapter 1, actually. Pardon? It, it actually gives you that interpretive key in chapter one, in Revelation chapter 1. Yes, yes. yes. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the two witnesses, would, would, oh, would they yeah, understand I mean, that? Yeah, mean? they would probably recognize, and, and that's also from, uh, is that Zechariah, or does he... Does he say in there? Because that's also uh, an image, a prophetic image. Um, this is 11.4, and then... Okay, 11.4? That's from the lampstands. Yeah, we'll come back to it. The two, the, two tr- the two olive trees, I think, is what... Um, Zechariah chapter 4, I think it is. Anyway. So Zechariah would be where you'd get better understanding of... of they would understand yeah, that? We'll, we'll go back and we'll okay. go back and take a look at it. But but I but I do appreciate that mm-hmm. is that that the symbolism because then it begins to make sense then yeah. you know yeah. so for me anyway yeah. all right I like the there's the very different perspective on the the numbers one hundred and forty four yeah. Thousand, you know, yeah. but I mean, there's whole, <laughs> you know, whole theology is based on, on that and what's going to happen, who's saved, and you know, but actually, it, it harkens back to mil- the military stuff that mm-hmm. we read in the Old Testament. And yeah. 
so it's very different than what. Yeah, it's a big Jehovah Witness thing too. You know, the hundred four, as you all know, hundred forty-four thousand. <clears throat> I think there's eight point seven million of Jehovah Witnesses. Yeah, twenty-three countries. All, all trying to become one hundred forty-four thousand. Well, you and so these, the those will go to heaven directly. You can still get bumped out of there if you're if you fall back. Yeah. But then, um, then the other people they're gonna rule here, you know, mm -hmm. in a new, new earth. And I find it interesting, you know, so many people believe, you know, I mean, can you imagine all these people that believe that? Yeah, really. And that's one of the tenets of their whole. Yeah, that's yeah. that's where it all mm -hmm. goes. Yeah, yeah, and that's a big, you know, and I don't, man, I I probably should have gone back and studied up on, on Left Behind, because there's a lot of the details that I just don't remember anymore. I actually read quite a few of the books, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, but I just don't remember, and like, the, the sequence of events and, yeah. and all of that, but, but everything is, is correlated with future events in that, and so yeah. including the 144,000 yeah. and, yeah. and all that, so, yeah. And so um. that 144 is referring to a military... Number or yeah, like a military census. Census. Okay. But then what's what's interesting about it though, and and John is very consistent with this, uh, and I like how Tim Mackey brings it brings it out. Remember in the throne room, he he hears the Lion of Judah, but he sees the slain lamb. Mm -hmm. So in this case, John hears this approaching army of one hundred and forty four thousand, but what does he see? Caesar, every tongue and tribe and nation uh -huh. that are going to be the ones that are going to ultimately be the, the, how people are led to repentance because they are following the, the way of the Lamb. Yeah, they're, they're following mm -hmm. the slain Lamb. And I think he says specifically that they're mm -hmm. martyrs. Oh, I, okay, I missed that. Yeah. So it's, it's an army not of people who are ready for battle. It's an army of people who are willing to lay down their lives. Just like the lamb did. Yeah, I really like that correlation where it's like they were hearing about the Messiah, about this grand old warrior, mm -hmm. and then it's, but they saw Jesus mm -hmm. and, you know, the sacrificial lamb. Like, that's like hearing and seeing are two different things. Yeah. And, and Jesus talks a lot about, you know, hearing and seeing. And like truly seeing, there's yeah. a difference between seeing and then truly seeing. I just like that yeah. how that plays off. Well, and what's interesting is, as you see all throughout the Gospels, think about the triumphal entry. Okay, Jesus goes into Jerusalem, and they're saying Hosanna, Hosanna, and they're expecting <coughs> a, a king, a military king, who is going to um, set up the Israelite Empire. Yeah. And instead, what do they get? They get a slain lamb, yeah. who's who's still king, by the way, but is he's in a different form. Or when uh, James and John's mom go go to Jesus and they say, "Hey, they would really like to sit on your right and your left hand," and Jesus is like, "Are you sure you can drink from the cup that that it takes to to sit in those places?" And then, of course, what does he say? He says. Uh, the rulers of the gen uh, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their rulers exercise authority over them. But what does he say next? 
Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great must become a servant. And whoever wants to be... Oh, man, what is the... Come on, help me out. Whoever wants to be great must be your slave, and whoever wants to... Ah, man, I should know this. <laughs> anyway, you get the idea, Yeah. right? It, it's, it's, turning, it's turning things upside down, right? We always uh, we always crave power we always crave comfort we crave things like that but john consistent with jesus all along is saying well actually the thing that you should crave is being part of the people of the lamb that's that's the way of jesus and it's a consistent theme all throughout Anything else? I'm just struck by the profundity of the message here. I and mean, not, like you say, not that it doesn't exist in other places in Scripture, but that the plagues, the famines, the whole mm -hmm. Exodus thing didn't cause the people to repent, but it was the church and how the Lord worked through the church in our witness of following the Lamb and that puts, uh, how do I verbalize this, um, like our own suffering um, into perspective, like it's our suffering when we're suffering because we're following Jesus is incredibly powerful, mm -hmm. just like the Lord dying on the cross was the most powerful event in history, it puts our own suffering for following him into perspective and our own purpose into perspective. Um, and I can see where that would be incredibly strengthening for the church who hungered to make Jesus known. Mm -hmm. And, oh, by the way, this is the way you make him known. You're willing to die. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, really puts things... And, and not even the the famines and things, you know, and you think about the things that are going on today with extreme weather and those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But but if we apply this to today, those kinds of things aren't going to cause people to repent, but our the way we live mm -hmm. will. Mm -hmm. yeah. powerful. Our, our witness in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. and, and you can see when you consider what the, what the early church was going through, you can see why they would need something like Revelation to give this big picture because when you're suffering like that and you know maybe at the time it didn't seem like people were uh, rushing to the altar to follow Jesus, it just doesn't seem like it's working. And, but what works? Well, power and marketing and military and political and you know, all that kind of, that's the stuff that works. You can gain lots of followers that way. And so it doesn't seem like it's working, just like Jesus, uh, when he, even after he was resurrected, how many people were in the, in the upper room in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost? 120? 120, yeah. Well, Jesus didn't have a very effective ministry. <laughs> and so when, when you're going through that, and then, it, then you need some encouragement. 
And so what, what John is saying is, okay, this is what's happening right now. And like right in the middle of that first line where, where they're asking, you know, who can stand? How much longer, Lord? And he says, just a little bit more time. But let me show you, this is how it ends. Okay, so hang, hang in there, stick with it. Okay, it, it, it's not going to seem like it's going to work out for you, especially those of you who are martyred. But I, I will guarantee you that it's going to work out in the end. Okay, let's, uh, let's go on to the second one here. Again, it's gonna, you're going to be like drinking from a fire hose here. And I'm going to go all the way to the end, even though we're going to deal with just the first, uh, just the middle section here on your sheet of paper. Um, but we'll, uh, we'll go ahead and do the second time. The Revelation of Jesus given to John the Prophet. In the first video, we explored how John composed this apocalyptic prophecy as a circular letter to seven churches in Asia Minor to challenge and comfort these Christians who were suffering from apathy and persecution under the Roman Empire. We also encountered John's main symbol for Jesus, the slain lamb, who conquered his enemies by dying for them. He is the one who opens up the scroll containing God's purposes to bring his kingdom on earth as in heaven. The scroll's opening brought warning judgments, like the plagues of Egypt, and like Pharaoh, the nations do not repent. And then John introduced the multi-ethnic army of the Lamb, and the opened scroll revealed their strange mission. It's to follow the Lamb by bearing witness to God's justice and mercy before the beastly nations, even if it kills them. And they will conquer the beast by laying down their lives just like the Lamb, and this will move the nations to repentance. In the remainder of the book, John will fill out his portrayal of this beast and his war on God's people and how the whole story ends. After the seven trumpets, John stops the drumbeat of sevens with a series of visions that he calls signs. The word literally means symbols, and these chapters are full of them. These visions explore the message of the open scroll in greater depth. The first one reveals the cosmic spiritual battle that lay behind the suffering of the seven churches under Roman persecution. It's a manifestation of that ancient conflict that began in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent, who represents the source of all evil, is depicted here as a dragon. It attacks a woman and her seed. They represent the Messiah and his people. Then the Messiah defeats the dragon through his death and resurrection, and it's cast to earth. There, the dragon inspires hatred and persecution of the Messiah's people. But they will conquer the dragon by resisting his influence, even if it kills them. John's trying to show the churches that neither Rome nor any other nation or human is the real enemy. There are dark spiritual powers at work, and Jesus' followers will announce Jesus' victory by remaining faithful and loving their enemies, just like the slain lamb. John's next vision retells the story of the same conflict, but this time in the earthly symbolism of Daniel's animal visions. John sees two beasts empowered by the dragon. One of them represents national military power that conquers through violence. The other beast symbolizes the economic propaganda machine that exalts this power as divine. And these beasts demand full allegiance from the nations, and that's symbolized by taking the mark of the beast and his number, 666, on the forehead or hand. Now, this is an infamous image, and you won't discover its meaning by reading news headlines. John's making a clear Hebrew Old Testament reference here. First of all, this mark is the anti-Shema. The writing on the forehead and hand, it's a clear reference to the Shema. 
an ancient Jewish prayer of allegiance to God that's found in the book of Deuteronomy. This prayer also was written on the forehead and as a symbol of devoting all your thoughts and actions to the one true God. But now the rebellious nations demand their own allegiance and they force everyone to decide who they will follow. Then there's the number of the beast, which has fascinated readers for thousands of years. But this was not a mystery to John. He spoke Hebrew and Greek, and Hebrew letters were also numbers. If you spell the Greek words Nero Caesar and the word beast in Hebrew, each one amounts to 666. Now, John isn't saying that Nero was the only fulfillment of this vision. Nero is just a recent example of the ancient pattern set out by Daniel. That the nations become beasts when they exalt their own power and economic security as a false god and then demand total allegiance. So Babylon was the beast in Daniel's day, but that was followed by Persia, followed by Greece, and now Rome in John's day. And so it goes for any later nation that acts in the same way. Standing opposed to the beastly nations and the dragon is another king. It's the slain land. He's with his army who have given their lives to follow him. And from the new Jerusalem, their song of victory goes out to the nations in what John calls the eternal gospel. And they call everyone to repent and to worship God and to come out of Babylon that will fall, its days are numbered. Then John sees a vision of final judgment. It's symbolized by two harvests. One is a good harvest of grain, as King Jesus comes to gather up his faithful people to himself. The other is a harvest of wine grapes. It represents humanity's intoxication with evil. They're taken to the wine press and trampled. Now, throughout all of these sign visions, John is placing a stark choice before the seven churches. Will they resist the lure of Babylon and follow the Lamb? Or will they follow the beast and suffer its defeat? Now that... Okay, let's stop right there. What, what stands out to you there? Or what, uh, what questions or clarifications? So this is not one of the three sets of sevens. This is kind of an interlude in between them. That's why it's confusing. It doesn't just go, you know, seven uh, seals, trumpets, bowls. It's seals and trumpets, and then it goes into this, like, interlude of a vision, and then it finishes off with the bowls. But chapters 12 through 14 is, is pretty interesting. I never connected that mark of the beast to the Shema. And that makes a lot of sense of what that would have communicated to a Jewish audience. Yeah. Yeah, I like how he says it. He calls it the anti-Shema. Yeah. Right? And, and what is the Shema? Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Keep going. <laughs> okay, let's go through it. Uh, Deuteronomy 6. Uh, this is uh, starting with uh, four. Deuteronomy 6, starting with verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And what that means is the Lord is the only one. Right? There is no other Lord. And so think about that in terms of like the imperial cult. And, and actually what you'll see is the... What's it? Was it earlier in Revelation or, or later when he talked to, and when it talks about how the beast that, um, I, I think it's later. I think it's in chapter Roman or in Revelation chapter thirteen where he blasphemes and basically says, you know, I am the Lord. Uh, <clears throat> so the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And so when even, even back when he, when he talks about the army, it says he, he put his mark on them. Right? So what is, you know, there's the mark of the beast and there's also the mark of the lamb, which, which is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one. See how much better Revelation is when you yeah. go back to, when you, when you see it referring back to the, the prophets? And, and how, how much more consistent it seems to be with the rest of Scripture? Um, what, what does Shema mean? Here, um, here yeah. Here? Yeah. Listen, listen here, yeah. It's interesting, too, just thinking about that, that, that some of the... Pharisees kind of took this to an extreme by making those phylacteries that they actually like, physically tied on their hand, physically tied yeah. on their on their hands, and how that wasn't really what the Shema was asking them to do, but they just took it to that extreme, and how we can take that part of Revelation to the extreme too, like there will be an actual mark of the beast, and you have to look out for this mm-hmm. actual mark. That's not yeah. really mm-hmm. what he's saying necessarily. Yeah, when I was growing up, it was a barcode. Uh-huh. Um, and now, and then, um, I think more recently, it was a chip implanted, you know, here, here, that you can pay for your groceries and all of that. Any, anything else from that section? Corey, if it's, if it's uh, you know, if it's something to talk about later, then I'm, you know, we, we, can, we can wait and talk about it later. I, I'm, I'm kind of intrigued by the use of the word uh, allegiance. And, you know, you think about empire and, and, right. and the struggle with requiring allegiance to the empire. And in contrasting that to where we are told to submit to the rulers mm-hmm. and authorities, yeah. can you speak a little bit about contrasting our understanding of the meaning of allegiance and submission? Because it seems like in allegiance there's, there's something more involved in that than just being willing to submit to I mean we all have to submit to yeah. you know to laws and, and, and just for order yeah. but but we're not required necessarily <laughs> to, to bend the knee of, of allegiance right. to that and I think that, that can be mm-hmm. a tension for us yeah yeah a, a real tension actually uh, because in a couple of different places in the New Testament in, in First Peter and also Paul in Romans chapter 13, both say, submit yourselves to the governing authorities. And when, when Peter wrote the book of 1 Peter, the emperor at the time was Nero. And, and he went so far as to say the, well, actually, let's, um, let's see, 1 Peter chapter, chapter 2, 1 Peter 2. I don't know. There's a lot of revelation in here, too. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 2, and let's start at verse 11. Now, remember, Peter is writing to the same areas that, that Revelation is written to. 
the churches in Asia, uh, about 30 years before John did. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, um, exiles, Babylon, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Right? So there's, so this is, you know, he's talking about this faithful presence as believers, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of this, you know, evil empire that, that's going on. He's still saying, all right, you're, you're, not, you're not to be troublemakers, you know, at least not for no reason. I mean, I think sometimes there's, there's good reason to be a troublemaker. But, he says, ultimately, live such, such good lives, such godly lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether the emperor, as the supreme authority, remember that's Nero for Peter, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. And so here, Peter is saying that God is actually sending the government officials to uh, punish wrong and to, um, how does he say it? Punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. It seems to kind of conflict <laughs> with Revelation, doesn't it? Um, for it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So, you know, I think, I think part of it is, is you know, Christians live, at, live within all kinds of different countries. There, there were Christians in the Roman Empire, mostly in the Roman Empire at that time, but even as it, as it went out from there, uh, not every Christian lived in Rome. And, and certainly today, Christians don't all live under the same government. But I think what he's, what he's saying here is, is he's, he's giving some legitimacy to government in general. He's saying government has a proper role to play in society. And so, you know, Christians shouldn't necessarily be anarchists. And, and to some degree, at least, the government actually legitimately bears the sword to be able to punish evil or to, you know, fend off injustice, um, which is, you know, a little bit of a problem for pacifists. And, and I say that as someone who's, like, this close to, be, to being a pacifist. But it's just one of those things where I go... I, um, it, it just seems like, um, you know, both Peter and Paul give legitimate authority to, to governments to be able to, to govern and to be able to restrain evil. And, and sometimes it seems that, that the sword is necessary to restrain evil. Um, I don't know exactly how to, how to square that with Jesus' teachings about you know, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Um, but, but I think the, the the interesting thing, and I think maybe, yeah, I think Bill, I think we talked about this one time. Here, here's the interesting thing: is the early centuries of Christianity, 
Christians didn't serve in the military. Uh, they refused to serve in the military. And, and part of that was because when you serve in the military, you have to pledge allegiance. I mean, that has to be your highest allegiance. And, um, and so, but let's say, let's think about today. Let's bring it to modern day. Let's say you're serving in the military as a Christian and you go to fight in Iraq or you go to fight in Russia. And you're looking down the barrel of a gun and on the other side or on the other end of that barrel is a Russian Christian. So where is your allegiance? See, these are, these are the, the dilemmas that, that it brings up, you know, and why even, you know, like for a Roman citizen to, to become a Christian, there, there was a real dilemma there, you know, because on the one hand, like, this is, this is my, these are my people, this is my country, this is, you know, and, and so you feel, in a sense, you feel like it's home, uh, but when you become a Christian, it, in some ways, ceases to be home. I mean, it still is, but it's not your ultimate allegiance. How can can you have ultimate allegiance to to God and to your country? I mean, can they share allegiance? <laughs> you know, and that's the dilemma that that Revelation, I think, really brings up for us. Yeah. It's like I I don't think that it can because God tells us that He's a jealous God, so. Sure. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. um, he's, he's telling us your allegiance is to me yeah. and only me. Yeah, now, now there are a lot of Christians um, who, who would say, well, you know, as long as God is your highest allegiance, then you can have, you can have like secondary allegiance. You know, like I'm, I'm, I, I have some allegiance to my wife, right? I, I said vows, <laughs> you know. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they necessarily compete. Um, but... I, I don't. I, I'm not necessarily faced with those kind of dilemmas when it comes to, to loving my wife. Um, other than, you know, like if she uh, cheers for the, somebody other than the Dallas Cowboys. Right. <laughs> <laughs> even even the Dallas Cowboys have to take have to be you know <laughs> way, way down here. But um, I think if you're in situations where you have to where there are conflictingly you know. Yeah tensions like that you you work through it and you resolve it like yeah. in china we we had to resolve that of you know we are here to teach not be missionaries and you know had to reconcile with that like what mm -hmm. is if you we were living as scripture commands like there there were some aspects of that we could not we, we could not evangelize you know, it's so like, how do you integrate your faith into your life in the midst of that setting? And yeah. so, like, when you're faced with that, mm -hmm. like, you have to reconcile with, mm -hmm. you know, what what does that look like and how do I, is God my, my true allegiance? Right. You know, and so I think part of that is we don't have to face that in our day-to-day, -day, generally speaking, in our day-to-day -day conversations. Yeah. But when you do, like, th there is... You, you come to a place where you have to you have to resolve. Yeah. You know what what is my true allegiance? And it would be really easy if a lot of those choices were like choices between opposites, yeah. right? Because right. but but being a Christian and being an American are not opposites. Right. You know you can you can do both in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so they're not, they're not exactly opposites. But at some point, I think just about any allegiance will come into conflict with like my, my ultimate allegiance. And that's where, you know, the, the rubber meets the road and you either have to, you have to find a way to resolve that dissonance one, one way or the other. Could be accommodation. Could be choosing allegiance to the other thing rather than, rather than God. You know, that's, that's really the choice, right, that, that the churches in Asia were making. You, you accommodate, you find a way to square two things that don't necessarily go together, eating food sacrificed to idols and worshiping Jesus, or sexual immorality and following the way of the Lamb, to find a way to, to rationalize those things. Um, or you can stand firm and say, nope, this is where my allegiance lies. You know, and I, and I think today in, in our culture, as, as it relates to accommodation, you know, we, th- there are some things that, that, are, that maybe are obvious to us that we, we would say, well, we're, not, we're just definitely not going to accommodate about that. Mm-hmm. But there are other things that have become so much a part of our, I mean, you, you spoke about this some months ago in one of your messages about some of these, these ideologies that we have that have become so much a part of our DNA yeah. that we, we're, we're accommodating to them without even maybe even realizing it mm-hmm. or thinking about it. Yeah. And, and I think that, that becomes a, a real mm-hmm. complicated kind of a situation right. for us. Yeah. Yeah, I talked about, what did I talk about? Individualism and uh, nationalism. Cons- nationalism. Consumerism. Did I talk about that one? And mm-hmm. the, the sexual, sexual revolution. revolution. Um, yeah, I mean, there are, there are a lot of like modern day ideologies that, that vie for our allegiance, and and oftentimes in order to resolve the tension of what society is, you know, and they're ideologies of our society. In order to resolve that, we try to accommodate rather and um, to to you know one to one way or another, and, and usually what it ends up doing is it ends up watering down our faith. And sometimes it's to fit in, sometimes it's to reap the rewards of, you know, all that this prosperous society has, has to offer. Um, you know, and those were, and that was the case for the churches in, in Asia, too. Yeah. Uh, what did he, who, what, which church was it where he talked about, you think that you are rich, but you're actually poor and wretched? Mm-hmm. That's what he's talking about. Saying, you know, you think that because you're doing well, because you're wealthy, and because things are going well for you uh, in society, that everything's okay, but you just don't realize how poor you really are. And I think it's really easy for us in the United States, which is, you know, maybe one of the most prosperous nations ever, financially speaking, to think, okay, we're, we're, we must be doing something right then. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just not the gauge for God. Right. So, so it, in 12, it talks about not the real enemy. In the video, he talks about how the empires aren't their real enemy. Like, they're not the one that the people involved aren't the real enemies. Right. And so that just reminds you of, like, so, it, like, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind. And so just like Deuteronomy 6.5, he also says, the second is like this, love your neighbors. Right. And so it's 
we're still supposed to love the people that the evil is kind of shining through them. Mm-hmm. And, like, up here on the top here, I don't know where that comes from, but on here it says Jesus will return to remove evil from this world. So it's not our job to, like, hate on the people who the evil is coming through. Jesus will take care of that. Mm-hmm. It's our job to love the people so that they can turn from the evil. Yeah. And then the choice here at the end of this section here is resisting Babylon to follow the Lamb. And part of that is to love the people who are, yeah. are let showing me, evil. Let me, let me take it a step further. Um, Jesus also says, you have heard it said, uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Um, another, he tells a parable of the wheat and the weeds. Where the disciples were like, hey, should we cast that? Should we call down fire from heaven or why don't you destroy them? He's saying, well, if you do that now, you might, or you, if you try to uproot the, the weeds, then you might take some wheat with it too. In other words, uh, we, we, can't, we aren't always great judges right. of who is wheat and who is weed. And so, so this role, the, the role of, of judgment is not ours. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, the, the role of judgment is yeah. not. That reminds me of the speck in your eye versus uh-huh. the, or the speck in your neighbor's eye versus the log in your own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even, even when it comes to working for justice, and this is where like, other political ideologies come in, like <clears throat> political ideologies basically say it's a redemption story. It says, if we just do this, then that will bring about salvation, in essence, right? So, liberalism says, if we just focus on individual liberty, then that's going to bring about, you you know, going to bring about peace and utopia utopia and prosperity forever. Uh, um, Liberalism would say, if we just liberate everyone from these uh, structures, from these... um, you know, from everything that holds people back and allow them to be free to be themselves, then the world will be better. Conservatism says, if we just go back to the way things were before, back to the good old days, then, you know, everything will be better. Um, you know, and, and, so, and so basically, all of it is a utopian vision. And you could even, ext- you know, extend that. Of course, we think about utopian like Marxism, right? If we just get rid of private property then that's when society will get to that vision that, that Isaiah had in Isaiah chapter 10 where the lion lies down with the lamb. And Christians can fall into this too. This is the social gospel that says, if as Christians, if we just work for the good of society, then, and actually there's, a, there's a, like an eschatological component to it. We can bring in the kingdom, right? We can, we can make the world a better place, which then Jesus will come back and then, we'll, then there will be this thousand year reign of, of peace. Um, and all of that is, is we're doing this. But if you look at Revelation, what you find is, is that the job of the church is to be faithful witnesses. And, and God is the one who is going to bring about right. ultimate peace. Yeah. Okay. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be, you know, trying to make our corner of the world a little more just and, and you know, do the things that Jesus has called us to do. But if we think that, that by our own effort, we're going to bring about the kingdom of God, that's not biblical. That's something that God will do in the end. So we live consistent with, consistently with it. We bear witness to the life, death, resurrection, and uh, enthronement of Jesus. 
and then he does the rest. And we, we trust him to do it. Okay. All right, that was a major digression. Sorry. <laughs> Let's finish it. The choice is clear. John replays a final cycle of seven divine judgments, symbolized as pouring out seven bowls. Now we know from the Lamb's scroll and from the sign visions that many among the nations do repent. But as the Exodus plagues are repeated and poured out through the bowls, there are many people who do not repent. They resist and curse God just like Pharaoh. And so it all leads up to the sixth bowl. As the dragon and the beasts, they gather the nations together to make war against God's people in a place called Armageddon. This refers to a plain in northern Israel where many battles were fought by Israel against invading nations. And some people think that this sixth bowl refers to an actual future battle. Other people think that it's a metaphor for God's final justice on evil. Either way, John's clearly taken images from the book of Ezekiel about God's battle with God. God was Ezekiel's symbol of the rebellious nations gathered before God to face his justice. And that's what comes in the seventh bowl. It's the fourth and final depiction of the day of the Lord when evil is defeated among the nations once and for all. Now, John has fully unpacked the message of the Lamb's unsealed scroll. And now he goes back to expand on three key themes that he's introduced earlier. The fall of Babylon, the final battle to defeat evil, and the arrival of the new Jerusalem. And each one of these explores the final coming of God's kingdom from a different angle. So first, the fall of Babylon. An angel shows John a stunning woman who's dressed like a queen, but she's drunk with the blood of the martyrs and of all innocent people. She's riding the dragon beast from the sign visions. It's a symbol of the rebellious nations. And she's called Babylon, the prostitute. Now, the detailed symbols of this vision, they would be very clear to John's first readers. He's personifying the military and economic power of the Roman Empire, but he's also doing more. In this vision, John has blended together words and images from every single Old Testament passage about the downfall of ancient Babylon, Tyre, and Edom. John's showing how Rome is simply the newest version of the Old Testament archetype of humanity in rebellion against God. They come together and form nations that exalt their own economic and military security into a false god. This isn't something limited to the past or the future. It's a portrait of the human condition throughout history. And Babylon's will come and go leading up to the day when Jesus returns to replace Babylon with his kingdom. But how will Jesus' kingdom come? Up to this point, the day of the Lord has been depicted as a day of fire or earthquake or harvest, and now it's depicted as a final battle, and it's told twice. It results in the vindication of the martyrs. Now John takes us back to the sixth bowl, where the nations were gathered together to oppose God. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears. He's the great hero. He's the word of God, riding on a white horse, and he's ready to conquer the world's evil. But pay attention. He's covered with blood, before the battle even begins, and that's because it's his own. And his only weapon is the sword of his mouth. It's an image adapted from Isaiah. John's telling us that Armageddon will not be a bloodbath. Rather, the same Jesus who shed his own blood for his enemies now comes proclaiming justice. He will hold accountable those who refuse to repent of the ways that they participate in the ruin of God's good world. And the destructive hellfire that they've unleashed in God's world justly becomes their own God-appointed destiny. 
After this, John sees a vision of Jesus' followers who have been murdered by Babylon, and they're brought back to life, and they reign with the Messiah for 1,000 years. Then after this, the dragon, who inspired humanity's rebellion against God, rallies the nations of the world together to rebel against God's kingdom. But before God's throne of justice, they all face the consequences of eternal defeat. And so the forces of spiritual evil and everyone who doesn't want to participate in God's kingdom are destroyed. They're given what they want, to exist by themselves and for themselves. And so the dragon and Babylon and all who choose them are eternally quarantined, never again able to corrupt God's new creation. Now, there's a lot of debate about the relationship of the 1,000 years to these two battles. There are some who think it refers to a literal chronological sequence. Jesus' return, followed by a thousand-year kingdom on earth called the millennium, followed by God's final judgment. Other people think that the thousand years are a symbol of Jesus' and the martyrs' present victory over spiritual evil, and that the two battles depict Jesus' future return from two different angles. Whichever view you take, the main point is clear. When Jesus returns as king, he will deal with evil forever, and he'll vindicate those who have been faithful to him. The book concludes with a final vision of the marriage of heaven and earth. An angel shows John a stunning bride that symbolizes the new creation that has come forever to join God and his covenant people. God announces that he's come to live with humanity forever and that he's making all things new. John's vision here is a kaleidoscope of Old Testament promises. This place is a new heavens and earth, a restored creation that's healed of the pain and evil of human history. It's also a new garden of Eden, the paradise of eternal life with God. But it's not simply a return back to the garden. It's a step forward into a new Jerusalem, a great city where human cultures and all of their diversity work together in peace and harmony before God. And in the most surprising twist of all, there's no temple building in the new creation because the presence of God and the Lamb that were once limited to the temple now permeate every square inch of the new world. And there's a new humanity there, fulfilling the calling placed on them all the way back on page one of the Bible to rule as God's image, to partner together with God in taking this creation into new and uncharted territory. And so ends John's apocalypse and the epic storyline of the whole Bible. John did not write this book as a secret code for you to decipher the timetable of Jesus' return. It's a symbolic vision that brought hope and challenge to the seven first century churches and every generation of Christians since. It reveals history's pattern and God's promise that every human kingdom eventually becomes Babylon and must be resisted in the power of the slain land. But there's a promise that Jesus, who loved and died for this world, will not let Babylon go unchecked. He will return one day to remove evil from his good world and make all things new. And that is a promise that should motivate faithfulness in every generation of God's people until the king returns. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. That's all. <laughs> All right, you want to take a, take a look at some of it from the ground? Uh, go to Revelation chapter 6. I'll just point out a few things. Um, sometime if you want, you can just, you can take this sheet home with you and kind of read through it and, and find these things that he's talking about. Like I said, it's very high level stuff. And he's referring as much to the Old Testament 
as he is to the book of Revelation. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to show you this is where these symbols come from. That what John is saying is, is not a lot that's really new. It's not a lot that the Old Testament prophets or Jesus haven't already said. It's just a continuation of that. And then it gives this image of, of the, the future uh, there at the, at the very end. Um, but let's, let's go through some of this imagery. And actually, before we do, uh, I think maybe it was during the first session or the second session, I handed out these teams of Revelation from Scott McKnight. So if you, if you don't have one with you, then you can take one, or if you want to look on with someone else, uh, these can be very helpful too. It'll, it basically shows you all of the, all of the characters and <clears throat> what they symbolize in, in those times. The teams of the book. Yeah, Team Lamb and Team Dragon. Hopefully I have enough for everybody. To we won't go through it, but you can just use it as reference. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 6. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Now this is, the, this is right at the beginning. We just, I mean, they're still in the throne room, but now we're focusing on the scroll. And the Lamb is starting to open the seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Now, dispensationalist theology, or left behind, reads this as sort of a, a literal, maybe not a literal horse, but a military leader in, his, in sometime in the future that is bent on conquest. I'm sure that Hitler was probably interpreted as the rider on the white horse in that. Um, and then, then he goes on in verse 3, he says, When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given the power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures say, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of a fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades, and Hades was followed close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now, again, the, these are oftentimes equated with events that happened in the past, and, and every dispensationalist interpretation has their own interpretation of, of what these things mean. But again, if you go back to, I think it's Zechariah chapter, what did I say? Zechariah chapter 1, one. I think. Yeah. He doesn't explain it in, in quite as um, great of detail as Revelation does. Um, starting with verse 7, I believe. Yeah. 
On the 24th day of the 11th month, the month of the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo. During the night I had a vision, and there before me was a man mounted on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine. Behind him were red, brown, and white horses. I asked, What are these, my lord? The angel who was talking with me answered, I will show you what they are. Then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, They are the ones the Lord has sent throughout the earth. And they reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees, We have gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. Then the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem? from the towns of Judah, which you have been angry with these 70 years. So the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Then the angel who was speaking to me said, Proclaim this word. This is what the Lord says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. I am very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they went too far with the punishment. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy... And there my house will be rebuilt, and the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says, My towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. So, he mentions the different colored horses. Um, now, what can you imagine what the different colored horses symbolize? Now, in Revelation, you don't necessarily have to imagine because he actually says. First one is the white horse. What does what does the white horse symbolize? Purity. What's that? Purity. So victory, victory. resurrection. Uh, not in this case. <coughs> not in this case. Well, that's what you have on your symbols of Revelation. I know so. I do. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. He said a conqueror. Yeah, a conqueror bent on, bent on conquest. Okay? So in this case, it, it symbolizes you know, kings who are going into battle ride out on white horses. So it's, it's a symbol of, of conquest. Open the second seal. Another horse came out. It was a fiery red one. So what would this one symbolize? Violent power. Violent power, war. Um, red is the color of... Blood. Okay. Lamb opened the third seal, and there was a third horse, and that one was a black horse. And he has, the, the rider is holding a pair of scales in his hand. What in the world is that all about? Judgment. What's that? Judgment. Okay. Jud scales is oftentimes judgment, so that's a reasonable answer. I don't know that it is. In the, I don't know that it is in this case. Yeah, you, a lot of times it is, for sure. The economy? Yeah, the, the economy. How much things cost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's how, they, that's how they bought and sold, you know, according, according to weight. Right? And so notice that it keep, keep, he keeps going. Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, six pounds of barley for a day's wages. Actually, they, they say that it, it could symbolize famine because during a famine, the cost of food is astronomical. 
So what you're seeing here is there's all kinds of disasters, things that, things that um, sort of oppress people and um, kill them. <laughs> um, they, they make life pretty terrible. Um, and then, of course, the fourth horse. What color is that horse? It's pale. So the, the, color, of, the color of death, basically. And there's death. Um, and so, so basically, you know, this is the first set of seven seals that are happening, and these are the these are the first four seals of it, and uh, and you can see it here in the in the graphic, and this is just wreaking havoc on the world. These things, conquest and war and famine and death, you know, uh, maybe death by plague. Um, you see uh, some of that as well. Uh, even to the point where the people of God are saying, "All right, how much, how much longer? Uh, we're victims. How much longer do we have to do we have to do this?" And that's that's actually the sixth seal. And then the seventh seal is the is the army. And I think the army starts in yeah chapter seven. Um, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or any other tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been giving power to harm the land and sea. Do not harm the land or sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of the land, uh, all the tribes of Israel. Lists them all out. Uh, Verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. Now, one of the things that I think it's Scott McKnight points out here is that Revelation was writ- written to just a handful of Christians. Who, who knows how many? There are maybe a couple thousand that, that would have actually read the original letter to Revelation. And imagine how they felt as believers, as followers of Team Lamb, uh, in the middle of the Roman Empire where there were millions, anywhere from 30 to 60 million people at that time. And, and here he's describing a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Now imagine how encouraging that would be. Because yeah. it had to be a daunting task at the time, and they probably remembered the, the great commandment, go and make disciples of all nations, or you will be my witnesses in all of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. And still here they are, just a few thousand, you know, handful of believers in each city. And now John is saying to them, here's the vision of the future that I see. is this great multitude of people from every people and language. What, what an encouraging thing. I, uh, I see, I, I see this, um, this great evangelistic movement go out. And people from every tribe and nation... Uh, will come to Christ. I think encouraging, but I like I told you, also like how. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. how how is that going to happen? And another thing that popped in my head, and then how long? You know, 
I and mean, they actually, they actually ask that question. Don't they? How long? There you go. Yeah. So it's it's like encouraging, but I think at the same time, it's it was must have been somewhat intimidating too that, yeah. to think that <clears throat> though though all of us here that that is going to happen from all of us. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry for the shy guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's gotta go. Yeah. Gotta be bold. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, so that so that you know kind of takes us through that first set. But this is like the first, the the first description of of the history, right? There's suffering, there's evil, there's conquest, there's war. Um, like Tim Mackey says, we're uh, just the average day of hu- in human history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, people are saying, especially believers, are saying, "How long? We're outnumbered. Seems like we're being persecuted here." How long? And God says, just a little longer. Hang in there. Hang in there, because this is what's going to happen. And then he does it again, you know, chapters 8 through 11. Sends the, the, the plagues are there, uh, the lamb scroll. Um, and then the, the two witnesses that prophesy, the two lampstands. Right? Um, and I remember this very specifically. I think it opens one of the books of of left behind this picture of two like prophets who go to the wailing wall at Jerusalem and start to mm-hmm. preach. And... I remember the movie. I remember yeah. The movie. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so that's depicted very literally. Yeah. Right. Uh, but of course at the beginning of, at the beginning of revelation, uh, Jesus says the lampstands are the churches. Right. So these represent churches. And, uh, and, and so this is talking about like the mission of the church. So in the middle of all of this suffering that is happening and all of these plagues that are being unleashed on the earth, the church is being faithful, continuing to bear witness. And, and, and it's interesting, the, the, word, the, the Greek word for witness is actually martyr. So, so martyr actually just means witness. It doesn't necessarily mean someone who dies, but it's taken on that meaning. Uh, meaning. Um, but certainly someone who dies for their faith is like the ultimate ultimate witness but what this is a depiction of is is this is a depiction of the church being faithful in the middle of suffering in the middle of persecution um, bearing witness to the life death death resurrection and enthronement of, of jesus and then the beast comes and kills him but then god resurrects him and again, this is not just a one-time thing. This is something that happens over and over and over and over. And you can see it in the, in the early church. Um, the, the beast always comes and, and messes things up. Yeah. Really. One way or another, uh, it, can, it can mess things up. Usually the pattern is the beast comes and entices uh, the people of God to, to accommodate. Um, and this is a pattern that you've seen all along. Like, uh, start with Adam and Eve. Uh, they're living, they're, they're tempted, they're enticed. If you eat from the fruit of this tree, then you will become like God. And what happens then, you know, sin and death and all of that enters, enters the world. And so, uh, you know, the Satan is is symbolized by a dragon in Revelation. But what is a dragon but a serpent with wings? 
Um, so it, it's you know it's the same it's the same image. Um, so they're they're enticed first of all, and then they're persecuted, and and you can see that in the or see that in with the people of Israel. All right, um, they're in the in the promised or yeah they're in the promised land, and. What happens to them when they're in the promised land? They didn't drive out the Canaanites, right. and so they're enticed by idols and, uh, and immorality and, and all of that, um, and, then, and then judgment comes. Um, if you look at the, the, the Roman Empire, um, or even just what we're looking at in, in Revelation, uh, <clears throat> it had to be a real temptation for Christians to accommodate during that time, to the imperial cult, to the the cult of prosperity, and all of that, to give up their faith. And when they didn't do that, then they were persecuted. Um, even when you get into like the fourth century, Christianity had grown a lot throughout the years through the faithful witness of the church. Uh, both like the apologists who who wrote a lot about theology, defending the faith, and all of that. But I've t- also talked about. You know, just the faithfulness of, of believers who, when the plagues were happening in 160 and 260 A.D., everybody else left, but the Christians stayed and nursed people back to health in the middle of the plague, many of them dying for that. Uh, that grew the church a lot right there. Um, <clears throat> and then when it seemed like Christianity was winning, then Constantine comes along and... Uh, converts to Christianity, although there's some question about whether he was sincere or not, and you know, I guess we'll leave that for others to decide. But essentially, what happened was was that he opened the door then for the church to come to power, and pretty soon, uh, the church was no longer on the margins, but then it was in the center. And uh, this is what I don't remember who coined it, but is oftentimes known as the the uh, what, what, the Constantinian captivity of the church. When, when the church starts to get melded together with the government, and pretty soon it becomes advantageous to be a Christian, and then next thing you know, uh, whereas before it was very clear who was the church and who was not the church at the time, because um, if, if <laughs> you, you, couldn't, you, you couldn't hide it. You know, you were faithful or you were not. And... Uh, but then all of a sudden, when Constantine become, comes to power and Christianity becomes the empire, the Holy Roman Empire, then all of a sudden, you don't know. Is Constantine saved or is he not? I don't know. He was still the high priest of paganism. Um, and, and so then all of a sudden, these things start to, start to get melded together, the, the church and the government. And uh, usually when that happens... The, the church suffers greatly. Sometimes the government does too, but usually it's the church that loses out. Because now what you're trying to do is, is you're trying to promote the kingdom of God, not in the way of the lamb, but in the way of the dragon. And so, you know, suddenly Christianity loses its, its lamb-like qualities. Um... And, and that's the story that happens over and over and over again. I mean, think about, uh, I was reading today about, so the, 
the most popular theological dictionary, or the best-known theological dictionary, is one written by a German guy uh, named Kittel. I don't remember what his first name was. Um, but it, it's kind of the, the standard. Uh, <clears throat> but it's, it, it, it's published, it was published in German, uh, translated into English. And there's a preface to, like, chapter 3 or 4 or something later on there that basically is, is him talking about... Uh, essentially pledging allegiance to Hitler. Oh. They, they took it out of the English translation of it, um, but in the German translation, it's, it's still there, or at least you know, the, the older ones. And basically, it's, it's finding ways to accommodate Christianity, to, to accommodate to the national socialist, because Kittel was a national socialist. Mm-hmm. Um, and pretty soon, those things start to come together, and, and what happens? <coughs> Not only... Well, government turned out bad, but but Christianity also turned out bad too. Um, and then there were people like uh, Karl Barth and uh, Bonhoeffer and, and those guys who, who were part of the Confessing Church that said, "I'm not gonna not gonna bow to empire." Kind of like sleeping with the enemy. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So here here's why I'm go uh, why I'm going through this. The, the seals, the signs, the bowls is just a, another way of pointing out this is how history works. You have empire, you have the people of God who are tempted to accommodate or to give up in the face of persecution. But hang in there, be faithful, and it may not seem like things are going well right now, but your job is not to fix things. Okay, your, your job is not to gain power over the government. Okay? Your job is to be faithful and bear witness to the life, death, resurrection, and atonement of Jesus. And, and he will finish things in the end. Um, it's 8 o'clock. That's usually when we quit. Any other thoughts or reflections, questions? I was thinking you should laminate these two and use them for placemats. <laughs> Great, aren't they? they you, can, you can get these for every book of the Bible. Uh, you can find it on their website and just print it out. Bible mm-hmm. Yeah, BibleProject.com. <laughs> okay. What do you think about chapter nine or <laughs> six or seven, whatever? You know. Yep. Uh, Abby, would you would you close us? Jesus, we thank you um, just for the promise that we see in Revelation that no matter what we see in front of us in our day to day, no matter how bad things seem or how evil just seems to be surrounding us at every corner, we know that ultimately you win that you have overcome every bit of death and disaster and every empire, everything that rises up against you has, has already been defeated and will be defeated one day. And so I pray that we would be people who live in light of that promise, that we would be clear-eyed about, um, about eternity um, and just of that reality, that you are good, that you are um, a slain lamb who has overcome by by love and sacrifice and just help us help us to live in that way too.
Pray these things in your name.